With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I was out with a friend of mine and he was the chief technology officer for a large power company. Large enough, there's three nuclear plants they manage within like 50 miles of my house. (laughs) And he was saying, we can't get the programmers. We haven't passed the test. We're like paying $35,000 a day because we haven't been certified that, you know, we can pass the test. I'm like, what? You control nuclear power plants. This kind of scared me. I was just thinking we could be without power. This new concept of survive in a grid down or a power out, what do you do? I just, I didn't know. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Do something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is episode three of our subculture series. Here, we'll deviate from the mainstream and explore communities that you might not have heard of. Some you might think are weird or out there, but quickly you'll find that these groups will challenge you to shed preconceived notions and tap into your ingenuity, creativity, and vulnerability. If you let these experiences in, you might just be able to change your life for the better. Today, we'll be talking to Forrest Garvin, who left the investment banking world behind after the chaotic lead up to Y2K. It was at this time when Forrest realized two things. First, that the world could potentially fall apart at any time. And second, that if it did fall apart, he was totally unprepared. These breakthroughs led Forrest to pick up survival skills, become an author and podcast host, and found PrepperNet. And yes, as the name suggests, it's one of the oldest survival and doomsday prepper groups in the nation, bragging over 64,000 members. But Forrest isn't just a prepper, he's also a community builder. And his story encompasses everything from fear and loss to growth and education to finding your people. But to kick this off, we'll need to go back in time to the mountains of North Carolina. Here, Forrest's early business experiences laid the groundwork for his career as an entrepreneur. Yeah, so when I was in fifth grade, my father bought a hardware store in a small rural community of the mountains of North Carolina. And I grew up working for my father in the hardware store, people would come in and literally grab merchandise and hold it up in the air. And I would see what the merchandise was. And I had a composition book and I would write the person's name on the top of the page and write the items that they were buying. And at the end of the month, my mom would literally type out on a one of the old style typewriters and send them an invoice of all the merchandise they got that month. This was in 1981. 
my dad was taking a class at the local university called basic programming. And I was taking the same class in the high school. So we wrote this program. It was a TRS-80. We built this basic template in basic language that would store that in a text file. And then at the end of the month, we could just hit print. And oh, that was that changed our world because it saved my mom all this time. And then other people saw what we were doing. They go, what is that machine? We told them it's a computer TRS-80. And we then created a business of selling the TRS-80 and the software. So Radio Shack down the street wanted something like this as well. And we created one for them. And they used it for years. Between you and me, when I first started chatting with Forrest, I was in slight disbelief. Clearly, the business world he entered as a fifth grader is nothing at all like the world we know today. It's an awful lot of faith to put in people to just let them take your wares home with them and automatically trust that their credit is good. But I think this sets the foundation for forced success in later years. It wasn't the mix of cutting-edge business technologies with Simple Life or ushering in the computer age from his parents' brick-and-mortar store, though both of these things were certainly a part of it. No, as you'll see, I think what really set Forrest up to be successful was the sense of trust and community that he was exposed to as a kid. But despite all of that, working in his family store wasn't always ideal. He was still an employee making next to nothing, and he struggled to control his emotions. So you are doing this with your dad in high school. When do you go to the Air Force and why? We were selling all these computers and the software. I didn't make any money off that. (laughs) My dad's a true entrepreneur making me work for dollars an hour. But yeah, that was disappointing. Now I look back on it. I'm like, I didn't make any money from that. So then I went to a college, local college, to play some sports. I found out I couldn't transfer. No one wanted me to play basketball. And my grades were not the best in the world. I was passing at best. So I joined the Air Force. And I spent four years in the Air Force. And, you know, I always tell people I kind of feel guilty because I think I got more out of the Air Force than the Air Force got out of me because I grew up. I mean, I really did. And I matured. And I I got to the place where I could handle pressure and not just get mad. And it was a true blessing just to go through there. The most impactful time was when I spent three months alone. I was on a special operations unit at a Pope Air Force Base. We were deployed overseas, and I ended up in Athens, Greece. And I'm a support guy, and they're flying sorties out and everywhere. I was the only support guy that wasn't needed on the plane as the plane was going out and practicing. I stayed there for three months without seeing another person in the Air Force. And I would go to the airport or in case the plane needed to come by, you know, needed my help or something. I did that for like three weeks. And finally, I'm like, these guys aren't coming. And this was 86. You know, a pager was just the greatest technology ever. But it didn't work in Greece. And so that's why I kind of had to be there. I was always on call. And so I kept going and kept going. And after about three weeks, I'm like, this this doesn't seem to be working. They're not coming. So what I what I did is when, you, when you're in Athens, the airport, you can see the planes like 10 miles out coming to land. 
And I said, well, you know what? I'll just kind of pay attention. If I see one of our C-130s come in, I'll boogie on over to the airport and I'll be there. They might even not even know. We had one plane that was there as like a um, backup plane. And I would get on top of the plane and just sit there with some you know, blanket and a pillow. And I'd, I'm watching, you know, the Russian airlines come in and the rain, all these airlines. And it was just mind blowing. All these airlines just landing with people. And I'm just there and I did nothing. In Athens, there's this thing called ouzo, which people, it's like this very potent alcohol, and people in America always wanted it. And so, you know, I could get on my HF radio on that plane because I was a radio and, and radar guy. I could fire it up and I could talk to people where I live. I could, they could patch my mom and dad in. Every time I talk, they go, Hey, can you send some ouzo over? I'm like, Sure. little business where I'd buy this Uzo and then the military um, plane would come in for mail. I'm like, oh, here's a box. Take it. That was my only job for about three months. I wouldn't say that's a typical Air Force experience. No, no. You know, I did get bored. I met this, I think he was 19 year old young man that was practicing to be on the Greece national tennis team. So I did learn how to play tennis because at the hotel, he's down there hitting, got a coach. I'm like, hey, you want to play? And of course, he destroyed me every time, but it was pretty cool. I was so bored, I'll tell you this. I never excelled in, in my written communication skills in, in writing class or anything, but I actually wrote poetry. And I'm like, <laughs> what in the world? It's awful. I've got like one sense and I I almost threw it away because I didn't want I mean, my kids when I died and they would look, gosh, this guy wasn't smart at all. <laughs> And I still have it today. And it's just, when you get bored, you do a lot of dumb things. You know, an Air Force guy that comes from the mountains and, you know, mountain boy from the outside. When he writes poetry, there's something bad going on. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, there isn't a city, town, or village in Greece where you can't find Uzo. Uzo is liqueur flavored with anise, which means that it tastes a lot like black licorice. It's delicious, and people all across the world love and share it. Traditionally, the drink is slowly sipped in the company of others over the course of many hours. Company that Forrest just didn't really have at this time. And after growing up in a small rural mountain town where community was handed to you, you can only imagine how hard it was to adjust. Now, Forrest was totally alone in a country that wasn't his own, surrounded by reminders of his own isolation. I mean, think about it. He's always waiting for people who never showed up. He's watching planes of people come and go all day, and he's shipping drinks meant to be enjoyed with others to friends and family. But Forrest's time in the Air Force also had countless positive impacts. It matured him, taught him what it meant to be an adult, and by the time he got out, he was equipped with a clear sense of direction in his life. So you finish up your time in the Air Force. What did you do next? Well, actually, I worked for a consulting company that worked with the Air Force. So on the same, some of the same jobs I was kind of working on in the Air Force, I did for a, a large company and it worked out good. I did that for a period of time. Then I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, because I wanted to finish my degree. I went to the job fair in a, in a bank that's not even heard of anymore, but it was called First Union. Offered me a job at 39000 to be a system admin. Wow. And so that's where I got into, you know, technology. I was there for about eight months. And then a friend of mine, he called me. He works for Nations Bank. High up guy. And he goes, hey, Forrest, don't you know Internet stuff? You know, things. (laughs) He goes, well, 
Nations Bank wants to create a website and, and get on the internet. Don't you know that? They're hiring. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know all that. <laughs> and I, he goes, well, I'm going to get your interview. And I said, okay, can you make it for like a week or two? And he goes, sure, I'll make it for, how about one week from today? I'm like, sure. So I went out to the school, to the computer lab. I went to the person in charge there. It was just a student. I said, does anyone here know how to do anything on the internet? He said, yeah, this guy named Raul. So he texts Raul. He comes to the computer lab and I said, listen, I will pay you $50 an hour to teach me everything you know about the internet. And after about six hours, I knew hardly nothing but enough that the next week when I went into Nation's Bank and I interviewed, they thought I was a genius. They hired me immediately. That's incredible. I am just shocked. I'm like, oh my gosh. I, I mean, the pay was in, I mean, it was just mind blowing at that age. They started me at like $72,000. They made me immediately an assistant vice president. And how old were you? I was 23 at the time. You've heard the term fake it until you make it. Yeah. I'm still faking it. <laughs> so I get this job and my boss is, um, well, I won't tell his name, but he just says, what's our first steps? I'm like, consultants. We need consultants. <laughs> amazing. He goes, okay. He gave me a budget and I'm like, holy moly, really? It was a million dollars. And I'm like, gosh. Insane. So I went to this local consulting company and I hired these two internet geniuses, I guess. We, I interviewed them. They came on board and that was our first website. And it was going pretty good. Then people, they go, well, how do we get a, a nationsbank.com email address? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so I went and hired another consultant and he goes, oh yeah, so we need a, a mail you know, server. I'm like, okay, let's get one. You know, I'm not smart enough to stop when I don't know what I'm doing. I just keep going until it's done. No one's done it before. That never scares me. My mentor at the bank, he was the CEO of the bank, and he would go, Forrest, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're not the boss. And what he was telling me is, you got to hire people smarter than you. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're not the boss. It's sort of like saying, surround yourself with people you want to be like, or people who are smarter than you. Not a terrible piece of advice if you want to learn from those you're surrounded by. But for the most part, that's what Forrest had been doing ever since he left the Air Force. He only heard it out loud when the CEO of Nation's Bank said it. He quickly learned the value of being around people who could teach him things he didn't know. Because for being a prepper, broad knowledge is crucial. And believe it or not, other people's minds can make for incredible resources. But at this point in time, survivalism wasn't really his focus. At this point, he was still working in tech and the internet. And the real tipping point would come in 1999 when his entire industry was sent into panic. There was a worry in the late 90s that crossed people's minds about what would happen when all the computers went from 1999 to 2000. Can you tell me the first time you ever heard of Y2K? It was a concern about 10 to 11 months before. We just couldn't even comprehend why a computer would have an issue with that. I heard it at a conference. I think it was a Gardner conference, which is a research company. If you wanted the research, you buy it from them. 
I remember paying for a report. It cost like 10 grand from them to learn more about it. And I was reading about it. In the report, it says computers will stop working when it goes from, you know, December 31st to January 1st. The problem was a lot of computers only use the last two digits of the year. The computer would see that we're going back to 1901 or 1900. They wouldn't see that we're going to 2000. We would only use the last two digits. And so in a program, the computer would get confused and not know what to do and kind of stop. Imagine in a banking um, system, you're doing all these transactions and all of a sudden, all the transactions are now dated in 1900. You know, we had a person in charge of this within our group. And they started researching and said, listen, there is a problem and we need to take this a little more serious than we were. Microsoft went and updated some software that kind of helped. We had to go to vendors to make sure that they were updating. And so every time it refers a date or there was a calculation of the date plus 30 days, we had to go through every line of the code. We kind of passed all the tests. It didn't take us long. And we kept testing. We pulled the plug in a sense by changing the date manually. Everything seemed to work. And we backed up all our systems because, you know, computers may fry. We didn't know. About July, August, we started feeling really comfortable. We're okay. No problem. So in November of that year, I was out with a friend of mine, and he was the chief technology officer for a large power company. Large enough, there's three nuclear plants they manage within like 50 miles of my house. <laughs> and he he was saying, we can't get the programmers. We haven't passed the test. We're like paying $35,000 a day because we haven't been certified that, you know, we can pass the test. I'm like, what? Or you, can, you, you control nuclear power plants. This kind of scared me. I was scared. We had a newborn kid. He was about at that time seven months old. And I came home to my wife. She goes, maybe we should do something. So we went out and we started the prepping lifestyle. And what is that? Just being prepared for things that are kind of unknown. And so, you know, like the FEMA says, everyone should have at least a week's worth of food and water and just an emergency, a train to derailment, tornado or something. But I went to the grocery store and I bought a ton of chips and salsa. I bought baby powder and we stored some water. I thought we were ready. I, I mean, I just didn't know better. I mean, this this new concept of having, you know, survive in a grid down or a power out. What do you do? I just I didn't know. I mean, I've since have learned, but that kind of started me going, wow, if our system is so fragile that two numbers in software around the United States, if people didn't get it right, we could lose power, banking system could be shut down. What could happen to hospitals? And it kind of got me started thinking, and that's where I started my preparedness career or journey. Y2K started Forrest's prepping career. For those of us who aren't old enough at the time to clearly remember it, it's difficult to comprehend how pivotal Y2K was. When the year changed to 2000, people sat in anticipation, waiting for a catastrophic shutdown of computer infrastructure. As Forrest briefly talks about, people's fear took shape over the idea that computer systems wouldn't be able to process the shift when the code swapped from 99 to 00. If that were to happen, they would be looking at a glitch of epic proportions. For Forrest, this moment completely encapsulated the fragility of technology. It wasn't invincible, 
and its limitations could drag everyone down with it. So Y2K symbolized this fear, this fear of the unknown, and an uncertainty of what might come next. For Forrest, this was the beginning of the crossover between his job and his personal life. If the worst case scenario became reality, would he just let it happen? Or would he prepare to face it? Forrest chose the latter. But as he'd soon realize, prepping takes practice. This episode is brought to you by Carvana. Carvana is in the business of driving you happy. They put you in control of financing your car with payment plans that fit your plans. And their simple tools help you customize your down payment and monthly payments so you can instantly see a variety of cars that fit your budget. No surprises, no hidden fees. So to buy a car that makes you happy, visit Carvana.com or download the app. And so you prepared, but not really well. Oh, very awful. Yes. Oh, we would have died. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you did basically everything wrong. But, <laughs> yes. but um, can you tell me what December 31st was like? Everyone was watching. I mean, I, I promise you, there was no one in the U.S. asleep at that time. It was like a disaster could happen. And you think everyone prepared, but you're not sure. It came and kind of just left. But people, companies spent millions and hundreds of millions. I mean, there's billions and true, maybe not trillions, but billions of dollars spent in the entire United States. Just it was a real issue, though. Don't think it wasn't a real issue. Uh, after the, the date passed, like, what did you think of your ability to prepare yourself for something? Well, like we that? had chips and salsa, so <laughs> we were good for a while. I I wanted to learn, and at that time, the only the only communication tool to really find other people that knew more than me that I mean how do you store food I could just buy more food will it rot what about these you know the dates on the can so I didn't have a lot of questions so I joined this old bulletin board my best friend was I have no idea who he was but it, it was it was AK-47 which I didn't even know what an AK-47 was <laughs> but it was AK-47 NC-18 I would ask this person questions like hey what what can I store? And first thing he says, you got to have water. You got to be able to purify water. I'm like, well, what do I do? And I was buying these things that he was telling me that just so I could have something in case something like that came again. Then I started to to look elsewhere. I, I um, looked at, okay, some survival skills. What kind of survival skills would I need? And I was, you know, getting some books and reading them. And I'm like, so I took a survival course. I mean, I learned so much. It blew my mind. Then I'm like, well, gosh, I bet the the instructor knows a lot more than the students. So I went to and got my certification to be a in survival instructor. And then, you know, the survival school I went to, they're like, guns, you got to have guns. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've never owned a gun. So I, I bought a gun and I went to some basic gun classes and, and was learning. And again, I'm like, well, gosh, them instructors, every question I ask, they know the answer. So then I took the NRA instructor class, became an instructor. And this kept going. And all while this was going on, I'm a white collar worker working in capital markets or in, or in the bank and then capital <laughs> markets, capital investments. And you have like Krav Maga trading, ham radio instructor. You have your guns. You're like ready for the apocalypse. No one knows either. No one. I, I'm too embarrassed to tell my friends. 
Why were you embarrassed? I just because they would think I was crazy. Oh, everyone, you tell people you, you put a little food, but oh, the world's not going to end. It's going to be fine. Why are you doing that? I mean, and so, and one of my friends kind of made fun of me because I took the NRA, I mean, I took the survival stuff. He goes, why, why do you want to go in the woods? I'm like, it's not that I might want to, it's what if I have to? And he's just, he kind of made fun of me and I'm like, okay, I need to keep this to myself. But after the crash of 2007 and people I mean, lost their homes. And we actually experienced a hurricane that came right through North Carolina. It's called Hurricane Hugo, one of the, the biggest that's ever hit. And people, they weren't, I wasn't so crazy after some of these events. And they're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, just seeking to protect my family, to make sure that, you know, we could survive. Sometimes it takes sitting on the cusp of total disaster to see that prepping might not be so futile after all. Forrest briefly mentions the 2008 recession. It was a brutal financial crisis, leaving almost 15 million people unemployed. And it was considered to be the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression. That is, until recently, when COVID-19 altered our economy and our day-to-day lives. Not to mention hurricanes, wildfires, flooding, you name it. With the rapidly changing climate and unexpected events always waiting around the bend, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to not be prepared. With climate change, the number of weather-related disasters has increased by five times in the last 50 years. And if you live in California, like I do, you're constantly hearing about the big one, a massive overdue earthquake. Bottom line is, you never know what's coming. Where was your, where was PrepperNet during this? Oh, well, PrepperNet started right after that. PrepperNet came from a desire that I shared all this stuff with my friends and they didn't care too much. I thought if I shared and showed them some cool tricks of, you know, how to create fire, like 10 different ways, 15 different ways, that they would care. And they didn't. (laughs) In 2014... I created a meetup. I just heard about meetup like a week before and went to a meeting. I'm like, you mean literally I could put something on the internet and people would sign up and come? That is cool. So I went on meetup and created a meetup and had our first meetup and five people came. And they were the weirdest people I've ever met in my life. Now, now, now just know that I'm in the banking world and investment banking and I'm in there with, you know, it's casual Friday kind of suit on and these people come come in and I'm like oh my goodness what I found out was that the people that are really interested in the preparedness community are mostly the people that are middle class and lower because if you have 500,000 a million dollars you're not worried about things you got money so the most of the, the people were military you know, or people that grew up in rural America or in the mountains, they were kind of different. That was kind of where I came from. But man, I was I was a yuppie inside and out <laughs> at that time in my life. But these guys were so they were so smart in the different skills. They actually started teaching some of the meetups because I went to the one lady it was a hippie. And she's like, she she's lived off the grid for four years in Costa Rica. She's ex-Air Force. Her husband was ex-Air Force. And they had all these skills of making medicine from plants and tree bark. And, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, could you teach a class? And she's like, sure. And PrepperNet started out as it was called the um, 
Carolina Preppers Network. Mm -hmm. It started in 2014 because we were just in the Carolinas. So I started the one in Charlotte. And then of the five people, you know, one started one in um, Albemarle, which is down the road, Mooresville, Rock Hill. And so we were just kind of in the Carolinas and no big deal. This is going great. And so we grew to 18 cities. We had a little over 8,000 people in the Carolinas. Wow. I know. It was crazy. I mean, in Charlotte, we had one meeting. We had 180 people that showed up. I'm going to have to change the name. Then we changed it to PrepperNet. And it has just been growing like crazy over the last, especially the last year and a half. What does that growth look like? Like, can you tell me some examples or? Well, we have um, 64,000 members now. Oh, my God. Wow. And, and we have meetups in over 100 cities in the United States. And, and we're in five countries as well. Going from just five people who came to a meetup to 64,000 members is some pretty impressive growth. But it makes sense. I imagine that Forrest's initial desire to prepare and protect his family resonated with a lot of people, especially those of lower income who didn't have the huge financial safety net. It's those same people, those who live in poor neighborhoods with faulty infrastructure and scarce resources, who are also hit hardest by disasters. People who live paycheck to paycheck don't necessarily have extra funds for a deep savings account or disaster insurance. That can be scary. How are they going to survive something unexpected? This is the question that the PrepperNet community helps people answer. And well, they weren't wrong. Preparing for the unexpected was about to become a whole lot more relevant. Enter COVID-19. Most preppers, when COVID happened, they didn't have to run to the grocery store. They didn't, they weren't buying the N95 mask like, because we already had them. Pandemics is one of the things that we've all prepared for. We already had the drugs. We already knew the drugs that would be needed. We had the gloves, the Tyvek suits, the goggles, everything. And so everyone, you know, there were people on, on some TV shows saying the preppers went and, and bought it all. No, we we all had that beforehand. So I remember putting a post um, on the internet in February saying, hey, friend, family and friends, go to the grocery store and get, you know, take the pantry, the things you buy now, triple that, quadruple that now. It's not that you're, you you want to hoard. It's that you don't want to go to the grocery store if this breaks out when other people are going to the grocery store. I never thought they would shut things down. So my friends and family went to the grocery store and they started buying food, just everyday food. And they, they thanked me and goes, oh my gosh, we don't have to go to the grocery store for a month and a half now. That's That's amazing. Thank you. You can make fun of preppers all you want, but every single one of you went to the grocery store and you looked everywhere for toilet paper, not because you needed it, because you may need it next week or the week before. So everyone in America at some point is a prepper. It's just how far you take it, I guess. What we noticed was what was true for hundreds of years about pandemics was changing in the media that was that was bad information. You just don't throw 100 years worth of research out the window. And we're to, and, and our, our preppers were the ones, the members were going to the grocery stores with N95 masks and goggles. When you have an Ebola outbreak, that's what you use. You didn't use a cloth or these other ones that don't really block particles. We were like 
that's useless. Why are they telling people they could do that? And we, as preppers, because we've studied it, and we studied the Black Plague and all these different things and how people went through it and how to how to survive, we knew better. And it, so that really bothered us. So we just kept putting out the truth of what we knew from hundred, you know, the last hundred years. By referring to knowledge that society has accumulated over centuries, Forrest is ready for virtually anything, including that most recent thing. Yeah, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I feel like we're beating a dead horse by this point. But yes, a pandemic. It sent shockwaves across the world, debilitating community after community. In early 2020, no one knew exactly how COVID was transmitted or how to prevent people from getting sick. Following basic health guidelines like hand washing and avoiding crowds was given, but preppers went even a bit further. Their forward thinking enabled them to help others prepare while encouraging calm amidst the chaos. Forrest knew firsthand how debilitating fear can be. So reminding people that, hey, we've lived through something like this before and we can get through it again. That mindset provided some much needed assurance. And it's that focus, the resolve to help people live without fear is what drives PrepperNet today. Where would you say PrepperNet is today? What are your like what are you most proud of and um what are you looking for towards the future? So PrepperNet today, 64,000 members. I mean, it is strong and and it's it's awesome. I've gotten I won't say a thousand, but we'll say hundreds and hundreds of emails of people, even letters. People even send me gifts just because thank you for the information you were giving us. It helped me and my family get through this. When we had questions and we we read the books about, you know, the swine flu and all these other things, and we're hearing different things in the media, you just kind of put us at rest to, to trust what science has been saying forever. We did build our own social media site because in, in you know in the days of the administration, now I want everyone to know that we don't take a political agenda whatsoever. We may be patriots, but anyone is welcome to come to our meeting. We're about preparing people. We're not about preparing Trump people that like Trump. We're not about preparing about people in Antifa. Matter of fact, they've all come to our meetings. And when you go into our meeting, it's about learning how to purify water. What political affiliation does that have? None. So we're about preparing people, and that's what we're about. About five years ago, he goes, Forrest, you're, you're, you're a prepper. And all my friends tell me you're a prepper. He's a church member I go to. He goes, what are you afraid of? I said, nothing now. And he goes, he looked at me with the weirdest look going, huh. I said, I got food. I know how to purify water. I got some water. I got all these things. I, I, I'm not afraid now, but I was because, you know, wasn't prepared. Imagine this. I mean, this is the dream come true. If everyone had some skills, some of the old knowledge from our great grandparents, where we could see a, a creek and go, wait, I might not want to drink that water. There's a way to purify that and make sure I don't get sick. Imagine if everyone in America had the skills and the supplies. Then when a hurricane or tornado, a train derailment, rioting in a city, um, or whatever it may be, we could take care of ourselves. We wouldn't need to wait on FEMA. We wouldn't need for you know the Red Cross to come in. It's our neighbors helping neighbors. And that's what, that would only make our, our country stronger and better. The concept of neighbors helping neighbors resonates differently after the pandemic. Taking care of ourselves and our family, making sure that we don't get our elders sick. I mean, that's life. 
That's humanity. But Forrest also brings up an interesting point here. Skills like purifying water and how to make a fire are skills that were considered essential 100 years ago. But with modernization and the rise of new technology, we're kind of in this modern bubble and they're not really seen as necessary. Here's the thing, though. Natural and unexpected disasters don't stop where technology starts. We saw it last year with over 600,000 U.S. lives lost to COVID and another 1.2 million affected by Hurricane Ida. And the numbers don't stop there. Forrest wants to save lives, wants to inform, and wants to help people get through these disasters. So I asked him what advice he has for those listening today. So if you were to give one piece of advice to anyone listening to this right now, what would that piece of advice be? It would be, you never know what's coming tomorrow. Why wouldn't you plan for the unknown? We have car insurance and we hope we never use it. We have homeowner's insurance and we hope we never use it. But imagine having insurance to live next week or the week after or the week after by having food, maybe some extra insulin for, for someone, you know, some, some water sources. We, we prepare for the worst case scenarios, but the most important is to live. I mean, if your house burns down, you still live. You can feed your kids. The food chain, you know, well, it's, it's, we're having major problems in the food chain and people are just now seeing it and it's going to get worse. So imagine you can't get the food that you want or the baby formula you want because this system called just in time, you know, you see the ships off the coast. Well, right now, farmers are struggling getting the food out. They destroyed a lot of food last year. We don't have a food stockpile anymore in America. It's gone. We supply a lot of the world in food. Imagine if it, it gets tightened or something happens to the food chain or truckers go on strike. There are things that we can't control. So why don't you put a, a insurance policy for you and your family by having some food on hand, some medical supplies, some water, and just don't do it for yourself. Do it for me, your neighbor and your other neighbor. So you don't have to be dependent on them. And then when the crisis comes, we can get through it a lot easier and better together. People think preppers, oh, we have our bunkers out in the middle of the woods. You know, it's bomb proof. That is so far from the truth. Just being someone prepared is, is having food for times that you don't know that's coming. Imagine also even within your car and imagine just having a, a small bag with some emergency blankets, maybe some, some freeze dried food or some energy bars. That's just smart if you got kids and you have loved ones, but just, just be smart and things can happen that we, we don't know that can happen. Little did Forrest know that in December of 1999, with the clocks taking closer and closer to the turn of the millennium, that his life was about to change forever. But it wasn't about to change because of anything that did happen. It was about to change because of what didn't happen. There wasn't a massive glitch in the system and the world didn't collapse. But being that close to disaster forced Forrest to look at just how fragile and unpredictable things are. It made him ask himself, what would he do if things did go awry and he didn't expect it? Would he be prepared with his family? These were and continue to be important questions. And now, as we slowly make our way out of the COVID-19 pandemic, those questions feel even more relevant. But we've had to face the unexpected for over a year and a half now, to the point where it's almost starting to feel normal. I think that for a lot of us, we're almost starting to forget what it felt like to see empty shelves and use Kleenex for toilet paper. But what Forrest seems to be saying is, 
Don't forget. And in the process of saying that, he's managed to foster a community of people who aren't looking to forget either. Ultimately, being a prepper is more than just simply preparing for the worst. It's also about having a community, one that can help rebuild and uplift other communities. Like Forrest said, it's about neighbors helping neighbors. And by helping each other, we can focus on more than surviving. We can focus on living. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.